0: And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Excellent. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We're going to tackle that whole chapter here this morning. Certainty in a World of Doubt has been our teaching series, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We've titled this weekend's message, Home Also grab your sermon notes out. This is a statement you've probably heard, uh, if you've been with us, maybe for any length of time, really, because we say this statement. This is one of our value statements here. The desert breeze is a place where strangers become what? Friends. 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 You guys guys know that. A a place where strangers become, what is that again? And friends become family. Right on. And family is about home, and so as we talk about home, we're not just talking about where we live, but also where we worship, that, that where we live and where we worship should be a place of, of home, and here's how we've defined home. It's on your sermon notes there. Home is not just a structure, but a shelter from the stormy blast of life. How many need that from time to time? Show of hands, yeah, we all do. We need that place where we can get away from the stormy blast of life. It is a place of love, laughter, and learning. It is a place where you can truly just be yourself and and feel you belong. Some of you grew up in homes where you couldn't be yourself, and you didn't feel like you belonged. And so therefore, even that much more should church be that family for you and that home for you. This world is cold, draining, and stressful, we all know that, but home is warm, rejuvenating, and restful. Home is the place you recharge your batteries. It's a place of order and beauty, at least it's supposed to be sometimes in our homes, there's not much order or much beauty, but we have to try to get it back to those places, and the same thing as it relates to here at Desert Breeze. It is a place to build memories and grow into our future glory selves. It is a place of, now here's the four characteristics we're looking at this morning, I believe, that this text presents to us as it relates to the topic of home. Home is a place of healing, humility, hospitality, and honor. Those four characteristics we'll find in our text as we work through chapter 14. And so it is a place of, of healing, humility, hospitality, and honor. A couple of verses uh, that kind of help us to understand the, this distinction between a house and a home. Proverbs talks a lot about this. Proverbs 15, 6, I put those on your notes as a cross-reference, you can study later on your own. Let me read it to you. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. In other words, when we have a home as opposed to a house, it gives us something that money can't buy. So what we're talking about here is something that goes beyond all the, the elegant, fancy, uh, expensive homes that we might buy or purchase or, or whatever that might be. It, it goes beyond that. It's something quite different from that. Uh, Proverbs 17.1, it says, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So you get that distinction between a house and a home. A home is a place of quiet. And so I also gave to you really uh, the first uh, century church, the characteristics there of the home that they had as they interacted and related to one another, Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. So we got an interesting study here this morning. I think it's going to be very helpful for you. We really want to understand this as it relates to both our where we live and, and where we worship. Uh, do we have these characteristics in our life? But before we uh, walk through the notes and uh, read this text and unpack these notes, let's pray, would you join with me? Once again, let's go before the throne of grace and ask for God's help to understand and apply these truths to our lives. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence, oh my goodness. We, we, We don't know what we would do without you in our lives, working in our lives and through our lives and around our lives and so God, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Intimacy with you is life's most satisfying reality. And uh, and God, we get we 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 long we long for that day when we can be with you for all eternity. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But in the meantime, we get glimpses of that. Through our fellowship together, through our weekend services, through our time in your word and in prayer and hanging out with other Christians. So God, thank you. Thank you for those glimpses. And God, we're also thankful that that your steadfast love is better than anything in life. If it wasn't for your steadfast love, we would be consumed by life. Thank you, God. So God, we ask this morning through the study of your word, the the work of your Holy Spirit, fill our minds with your truth. and and our hearts with your beauty, and our hands with your mercy. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Let me, um, if you were to read completely through this chapter, it'd take you about five minutes. But since I'm reading, it's going to take us about 45 minutes, okay? Now, it won't take us that long, but I'm going to comment on some of these things so that you, you can make heads or tails out of this chapter and see how it applies to this idea of home. And these four characteristics, I think we can draw from this text a uh, place of healing, humility, hospitality, and honor. And in fact, uh, let me give you the, the context here. Jesus was invited to the home of a prominent citizen, a ruler of the Pharisees, and it was a dinner party. happened to be on the Sabbath. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath which was a major no-no you know, from the religious establishment. They didn't think that was cool. They didn't like that. It went contrary to their ways because they were moralists. They're religious. They, under- they misunderstood the law. And so Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath and um, it challenges the religious uh, people, the religious leaders that are present. Let me begin reading. Chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy isn't something we struggle with today. We have meds and, uh, that deal with that. It was just a, it was edema, extreme uh, swelling. So there's this guy that has this problem, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath or not? So he's gonna challenge them. And by the way, you're gonna see in this whole chapter, Jesus is gonna do, he's doing some heart surgery At this dinner party on a lot of different people, as you're going to see, he's going to walk through the list here. And so he he starts here right off the bat with the religious leaders and their mindset and how they understand the law. So he asked them this question, but they they remain silent when he asked them this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? This is really where we get the idea that our homes and this church should be a place of healing. That's the point that I think certainly Jesus wants us to understand but they remained silent, then he took him and healed him and sent him away, and he said to them, which of you, and he's going to challenge their thinking, get them to think about this, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. And, and now he moves from that, from being very offensive here to these guys, because he heals this guy, which should be... It should be normal, you know, if if indeed our place is a place of healing. And then he moves right into, he's gonna begin to speak to the guest. And, uh, And in verses seven through 11, so he addresses the guest and he says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, this isn't gonna make much sense, but I'll explain it to you in a minute. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And then he kind of summarizes all this. And he's dealing with really pride. And he's showing us how we need to be people of humility. And that's the second characteristic. Home is a place of, of healing. And now it's a place of humility. Verse 11, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Exalted. Now, what Jesus is talking about here was something that was very commonplace. In that time, when people went to a party, you were seated relationally. And so the host was the seat of honor, And then depending on how well you knew the host or how important you were in that person's life, you would sit either closer or further away. It's kind of crazy, but that's how they would uh, sit. And so Jesus is addressing this issue. He can see this jockeying for position and this this pride that these uh, folks have in their life, and he's dealing with that. Now, Jesus moves from, from talking to, so he's, uh, he's offended the Pharisee leaders, he's probably offended now the, uh, the guests, and now he's going to work on the host. <laughs> I love how he just kind of works right down the list. And, uh, and, and once again, as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is not some docile, neutered portrait of Jesus. He's a no-nonsense guy, shoots straight with people, and this is what he's doing here um, and in verses 12 all the way to 24, he begins to talk to the host. And he says, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner, dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. What is he talking about here? Why would he say that? Um, we're talking about hospitality here, so this is the third characteristic of, of a home. So it's a place of healing, it's a place of humility, but it should also be a place of, of hospitality. It, it's called the patronage system is what they were operating from. It was, it was complete quid quo pro, quid pro quo was, is Latin for something for something. You only invited people into your home, you only went into people's homes you knew you were going to get something in return. So I wine and dine you, you wine and dine me. You know, it's kind of that mindset. If I, if I invite you over, then you're going to give me a favor, and then I'll do the same for you. And he says, don't do that. Don't invite people over or have them into your life just because they can somehow pay you back. He, he's, just, he's dealing with this whole smoothing kind of attitude that's very prevalent in that day and time, but it's also prevalent in our day and time. Jesus, when he makes this statement, is actually completely trashing this whole patronage system. And so look at verse 13, he says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So this guy speaks up and says, hey, yeah, whoa, and he's talking about heaven, talking about the feast that we'll all experience when we're there with, with our Savior for all eternity. And he, this guy shouldn't have opened his mouth, uh-oh, because now he's on Jesus' list and now he's going to hook him up and kind of realign, you know, his thinking and his paradigm. And, and Jesus responds in verse 16, but he said to him, a man once gave a, break, a great banquet and invited many. And I love how regularly Jesus would talk about the kingdom of God, the Christian life is like, like a party, like a banquet that he invites us to. It's a place of celebration. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have, brought, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have, I have married a wife, and therefore, I cannot come. I like that one. There's uh, <laughs> a good excuse. Yeah, I'm, that, I'm, I'm married. My wife keeps me from doing all the things I'd really like to do. Is that what you're thinking? That's a good one. I like that one. That's biblical. I can blame it on my wife now. Actually, no. This is, the, this is what you're not supposed to do this is messed up because these guys are basically saying uh, uh, I don't have time for God I'm too busy with life too busy with work too busy with my wife too busy with this or that And he's, wait 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 let me get this right let me get this straight he's inviting you to a party with God as the host And, and you're too busy it doesn't make sense and that's the point that Jesus is making here and uh, verse 21, so the s- servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, a servant, man, I said that. It's not serpent, it's servant, Okay. <laughs> I did that the first service too, sorry. It's servant, okay, where am I? What, what verse am I? 23. And the master, thank you for that. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. There's nothing like tasting the banquet of God, what he offers us. That's the point there. Now, the next part, so he's he's dealt with the host and then this guy that said something. He talks about this whole banquet. Now he's going to talk to all of us. And I love this because there's no bait and switch with, with Jesus here. You know what I mean by bait and switch? He didn't say, hey, everybody, follow me. Fullness of life, best life ever. Come on, you can do it. That's what you'll get if you follow me. No, he, he lays it right up front. If you're going to follow me, this is what it looks like. He's going he's to lay it right out there. This is for all of us. And now great crowds accompanied him. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Hate? That sounds pretty harsh. What, what does he mean by that? A couple thoughts here you need to uh, keep in mind here. Uh, he's speaking idiom- idiomatically. Idiomatically, It's an idiomatic phrase. You guys familiar with that? What an idiomatic phrase is? Like we use them when, we're, when it's, it never rains like this, but it's raining like cats and dogs, okay? Uh, but it'd be using a phrase like that to really emphasize a point, And so the word hate in the Bible can mean uh, active hostility, I don't think that's what he means here, or it can mean comparatively, that's what he means here. So the word hate in the Bible can mean hate actively or comparatively, so what Jesus is saying, that our love for him should be so great that it looks as though we hate our parents in comparison. God should be more important than any family member. Let me me take it a step further. This is what I believe he's saying. Jesus wants and he offers a relationship of love that makes every other kind of human love pale in comparison. And and he's basically gone through the whole list of, of, I mean, he's talking marriage love and friendship love and parenting love and sibling love. He deals with with every kind of love you can think of. And he goes, you know, yeah, those are all good, but nothing compared to what I offer you. That's what he's saying. And so when your heart is captivated by that love, uh, people are gonna look at your life and go, wow, you not only, you love your, your kids, you love your spouse, you love your family, but oh my goodness, you love God, it goes through the roof. And in fact, I can see that because you love God like that, you even love your family even better. And that's, uh, that's the point that he's making. But did you notice also, I want you to n- note this too, is that he actually deals with what is, in, in our day and time, there's kind of the traditional and non-traditional mindset or thinking. So he deals with the traditional where we make the family the ultimate in our life. Family is everything. Or we make individuality everything. And you're in one of those two camps. Did you notice that? So if anyone who comes to me does not hate his own father, mother, and he goes through the whole list, and then he says, and even his own life, that he's dealing with individuality. He's not only just dealing with, with the, the cult of family, making family the ultimate in your life, but also making individuality uh, most important to you. So, so there's a mindset in our culture today that would say, the family's more important than your individuality. And then there's those out there that would say, no, individuality is more important than family. You know, fooey on family, you do what you want to do. And Jesus said, neither. I'm more important than both family and your individuality. That's what he's saying. He's saying, because I, I'm the one you should be serving. Don't serve family and don't serve yourself, but serve me, and then you'll serve yourself and family really well. Because you, I, you were created by me for me to give glory to me. Ultimately, we know that through the greater context of the scripture. And so yet, and then and look at verse 27. He says, whoever does, does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I mean, that kind of goes against the whole mindset of our culture. Follow your heart, be true to yourself. Isn't that what our culture says? Jesus doesn't say that. Follow your heart, be true to yourself. And he says, follow me. Say no to that because that's a dead end. Only I can satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. That's what he's saying here, ultimately. And by the way, does it cost to follow Jesus? You bet it does. He's saying, deny yourself. It's not about you, it's about him. It's living for his glory. But I I know this, I've been doing it long enough. Whatever you give up to follow him is nothing compared to what you gain. Believe me, believe me. So when he calls us to follow him like this, take up your cross, and what this idea, this idea of taking up your cross is, he's actually saying, I, one commentator that I was studying from, he said, put yourself in the place of a condemned criminal. And the only way that you can ultimately do that is put yourself in the place of Jesus and, and, and to identify with Jesus. In other words, every day remind yourself of who you are in Christ and that your identity is in him. And you're here to live for him. And it's about his lordship. And so what do you do? You live as him as the lord and savior of your life. And so you you obey all that he says. And you accept all that he sends into your life. And it's all for his glory. My life is yours, God. I surrender it all to you. Now why wouldn't you do that if you really understand the gospel and what he's done for you? And that's the idea here. Verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. In other words, think think, think out the implications of this. By the way, I, I said that. I didn't say it last night. I said it in the first service. Let me say it again here. This is one of the reasons. I said it last weekend in the third service, but why I'm not really fond of the whole, and I was raised with the whole altar call thing, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not completely against it, but I'm just saying that oftentimes, and I've seen a lot of people in, in kind of, uh, in an emotional response, give their life to Jesus, and they don't realize the cost. They don't really understand what they've even given their life to. And that's the reason why we're kind of hesitant about doing that. We we really don't want you to respond because, in fact, most of the stats would tell you that people that respond with an emotional response like that, very few of them are still following Jesus because they didn't understand the cost. Do you understand what that means to follow Jesus? Like, give your life to him? Your life's not about you. It's about him. It's about his glory. It's about living for him. That's what he's saying, It's not follow your heart or be true to yourself or whatever. you Are going to add him to your life so you can be more successful in business or marriage or whatever? No, no, it's not about any of that. It's all about him. That's what he's saying. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. It's like, I've seen that. Oh, you got dunked in the tank. You walked the aisle. You signed the card. You said, I'm a Christian. Two weeks, two months. One year later, you're not even walking with Christ anymore. What was that all about? What decision did you make? We're talking lifetime here. This is serious stuff. When Jesus challenged people to follow him, it was their whole life, everything about their life. I think we've gotten a long ways from that here in America today, I really do. In a lot of our American churches, we're just not teaching the gospel, really, for the most part. We're not challenging people. We're not challenging people like we should because Jesus, this is all red letter, this is Jesus talking I mean, he's doing major heart surgery at this dinner party on everybody here saying, hey, ch- take a look at your life. Look at yourself. Where are you in this? I love it. I need it. I want it more than anything. I love it when he, when he works on me and, and rearranges my heart and, and I begin to see what, I'm really, what life is about and understand those things. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who see it and all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What is that about? Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who, who comes against him with 20,000? Or... And if not, this is verse 32, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We're talking Christian here. We're talking someone who's a Christian, who's in his his home, his family. You got to renounce it all. And then he talks about salt. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, so there should be something about our life that people look in from the outside and go, wow, there's something that's very attractive about how they point to Jesus. I want, I want to know this Jesus that these people know. That's why the salt here, salt stirs up thirst within others, adds flavor. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay, whoa. Okay, did it take me about 45 minutes to read through that? Not quite, but here we go. We got a lot of work to do, so let's talk about this. It's on your notes. Get ready to write. Home is a place, both where we live, where we worship, of healing. First of all, that's verses one through six. Let me give you the next thought. So what does that mean to be a place of healing? What does that mean to be a person of healing? Are you a person of healing? If I were to hang out with you, would there be that healing come to me as a result of hanging out with you? This is what it means here, this idea. Hurt people, hurt people, healed people, heal people. You've heard that statement probably many times before my sister was asking me yesterday, we were talking, and she was saying, man, why are people so mean? Because she was dealing with some, some meanness of people that were in her life, and I said, are you talking about me? And uh, <laughs> No, and, uh, and I just said, you know what, they've, they've just got a lot of junk in their life. There's just a lot of hurt going on, and they're going to inflict it on anybody and everybody else. Why so much hostility? Got a lot of junk going on in their life. A lot of hurt. Hurt people, hurt people. Healed people, Heal people. Proverbs 12, 18. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Reckless words pierce like a sword. Oh my goodness, I, I, I've been guilty of that. And I've had people, and you know what's crazy about reckless words is that I can remember those words spoken to me by teachers growing up and coaches that even to this day I can remember them vividly and they, and they still kind of pierce. How many can relate to that and know what I'm talking about? You've had people in your life and you go, oh, my goodness. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise, tongue of the wise brings healing. God wants us to be people of healing. Now, Jesus is doing a lot of healing, but but to do that healing, sometimes you have to cut away at some of the stuff that's there. We'll talk about that in a moment, but here's the next point. Those who heal best are ones who both need healing and give healing. Those who heal best are ones who both need healing and give healing. A healthy community is dependent on all of us being both. Matthew 10, 8, when Jesus was sending out his disciples, he says, freely you have received, freely give. So you can't give what you don't have. So if you find yourself with reckless words, it's because you need to first be a recipient of that healing so then you can, you can be healed up so that you can give those words of healing, the, the words of wisdom. And so the next point on your notes, like a surgeon, friends cut you in order to heal you. Like a surgeon, friends cut you in order to heal you. Now, maybe you didn't notice my new uh, glove that I've been wearing up here. And uh, anybody notice this? How could you not, huh? It's like, yeah. Uh, let, me, uh, let me tell you a little bit about this. Um, I had some reckless words <laughs> towards my wife and she came at me with a butcher knife. <laughs> yeah, stabbed me right here. It went all the way through like this. You guys doubt that? Yeah. Now, which part of it is that you doubt? My reckless words or the butcher knife part? <laughs> the, butcher knife? <laughs> the butcher knife? Because he, I'm, I could be certainly guilty of the reckless words, yeah. Actually, that's neither one of those are true, but uh, though reckless words certainly, but uh, she wouldn't do that. But the, the fact is, is that I, I have an issue. I have a problem. I have a lot of issues. But uh, this is one of many... And I have a, it's an inherited disease on my hand. Some of you probably noticed it, some of you didn't give it another thought. But it's called Dupuytren's contractures. And it happens to men over 40 who come from a Scandinavian, Northern European uh, descent. My grandfather was from Finland. And what happens is that on the tendons on my hands, there's these growths that grow on there. And then they start pulling my hands in like this. My fingers start growing in like this. You can see this hand is already starting to grow in like that. It's not near as severe as this one. This one was really severe and actually my hands were like this if you ever noticed and I keep it in this pocket a lot of times because I didn't want it to be a distraction, but it was kind of like this for the most part. And I made it really good on weekend services when I did this. Okay, that's a bad joke. But uh but but uh, in the earlier days, when I had it like that, I actually went in, and they had a less invasive process that they would do. Is that they would shoot it with an enzyme—it was Xyloflex or something like that—and into that, uh, and then let it sit for 24 hours, and you go back into the doctor, and then they would pop it. They would go like that, and they'd pop that cord that's over the top of that. And so, when I first went in there on that very first one, it was about five years ago, on this hand is that they, uh, the gal, the nurse, explained it to me and said that we've scheduled you as the very last patient of the day because when we pop that, it, you're gonna be screaming so loud we didn't wanna frighten any of the other patients. <laughs> me and my wife are looking, it's like, when we drive home and I'm laughing, it's like, you gotta be kidding me. Those are very poor bedside manners, okay? <laughs> because I'm thinking, oh my goodness. So we get there the next day and the guy's going to shoot this with that needle in that cord. He says, you want any anesthetic? And he said, I said to him, you bet I do. Do you got any alcohol on top of that? I don't drink. I've never drank before, but I'm going to start right now. That's what I'm thinking. So he shoots that thing in there. And the anesthetic into my hand was horrible in itself. It was terrible. It put me through the ceiling. But then he, he shot it in there and numbed it. And then as he was gonna pop it he's pulling back and he's like sweating as he's like my wife's back there going whoa and uh, she was cheering him on but uh, (laughs) but he finally and as he pops that thing goes snap and this blood starts coming out of my uh the wound there he goes man I've never seen anything bleed quite like that and I'm thinking boy that really builds some confidence in me there doc I said all that, that was the first time. I said all that, it was all painful. It worked for about six years and finally had to go in for the major surgery. And this was a whole lot worse. (laughs) They shot me about six times in the palm of my hand just to numb it with a needle. And uh, I screamed like a little junior high girl at a scary movie. (laughs) Ah! No, I didn't do that. I didn't do that, but I felt like it. I felt like killing somebody. But then they took me under and they did the slice and dice, and it was extremely painful. And I've been recovering this since this Monday. I've got to tell you this, though, that though at 1 o'clock and 2 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the morning, I've had some really sweet times with my Savior. It's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful. It's interesting how pain draws your heart closer to God. And, and yet, why, why would I say all that to you? I said all that. I needed to have this fixed. And for it to be fixed, I have to go and, and be inflicted with some pain. My hands weren't working right. There was a deformity. Let me take you back. Like a surgeon, friends cut you in order to heal you. I needed to be cut in order to be healed. And so do you. And so do you. There are things in your life that some of you, you're headed on a trajectory of total destruction, and unless you have friends that are close enough to speak truth to you, you're gonna crash and burn. It's gonna devastate your life. Some of you have deformity in your life, and it inhibits you, and it hinders you from experiencing all that God has for you, and so you're desperate for people that are close enough to you that will speak truth to you like a surgeon to cut those things out of your life to bring healing to you. My hand's straight. My hand's straight. I mean, it's, it wasn't before. And I'm hoping that this will, hopefully it'll resolve it. But if it doesn't, I'll have to go back in in a few more years for some more surgery. But it's kind of the thorn in my flesh that God's given me. And I'm, I'm okay with it. He's, he's in control. But that surgeon is no friend of mine. <laughs> okay, no, he's a, he's a good guy. He's a, he did his best on this. And, and I hope I get some good recovery out of that. But Proverbs 27.6, faithful are the wounds of a friend... Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Iron sharpens iron, as one person sharpens another. My wife likes to call this uh, this splint the Michael Jackson uh, splint. <laughs> I, I, you know, I wanted to be color coordinated here this morning. So, and so here's the deal: is that, and I've seen this pattern here at Desert Breeze: is that people will come in here; they'll start getting close. And then we get a little bit too close or they get too close and then people start speaking truth and then people cut and run. Don't do that. You need to hear those hard truths. You need to be able to speak those hard truths. But that's where the healing comes in. And, uh, and this is what the hard truths uh, really sound like, what they look like. It's, it's, it's the combination of both love and truth. Here's the combination. It's on, it's on your notes there. It's uh, Ephesians 4, 15 and 25 talk about that's what brings the healing and the wholeness to our lives. Ephesians 4, 15 and verse 25. But love without truth is anesthetic without surgery. Love without truth is anesthetic, is anesthesia without surgery. It's sentimentality, it's shallow, selfish platitudes that keep others in denial about their flaws. Truth without love is surgery without anesthesia or without anesthetic. It's brutality. I mean, they had to shoot me six times in the palm of my hand because I, I, I didn't want surgery wide away. because this guy's cutting away on my hand. So six times in my hand, that hurt like crazy. But not near as bad as it would have hurt as they cut that out with the surgery. Truth without love is surgery without anesthetic. Brutality, arrogant self-righteousness. There's no healing in hiding. Here's what's common in our culture today is anonymity and individuality. That's why a lot of the megachurches thrive. Megachurches only represent probably about, not even, maybe about 1% of our culture. And uh, w- Megachurches were 2,000 plus. We're a church of about twelve to 1,300. We're a large church. Average church size is 100. Uh, 80% of the churches in America today are below 250. So we're a large church. You can hide here. You can come in and check the box, but we're not gonna let you. We're gonna hunt you down, okay? We're coming after you. We don't want you to do that. We want you to get connected. Anonymity, we just want to hide in the back. We'll just check the church box. Individuality, I don't want anybody to tell me what's going going on in my life. I don't need anybody's help. Wait, wait, wait. You're going to crash. Believe me, you will crash and burn. You need people in your life. You need to connect much deeper than what you connect here on weekend services. That's why we have small groups. That's why we push you so hard. We're about discipleship. Nancy and I just talked to two couples here that are part of very large churches here in the valley. They're not doing anything whatsoever to connect folks uh, relationally in small groups. All they're doing is come and listen to the big guy talk. That's all there is. They go, that's that's unhealthy. It's gotta be more than that. People gotta get connected. And so we've given you some options there. Life change happens best in small groups. If you want life change, you gotta get connected with other Christians in smaller group settings. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but I would encourage you, if your next step would be game of life. If you've never gone through game of life, take that or go to the connection party we got coming up. So that's the first one. That's healing. The next one is humility. We'll pick up pace with each one of these. Verses seven through 11. Remember, these guys are jockeying for position. And so if you're gonna be a person of healing, you've gotta be a person of humility. What is humility? Let's talk about pride here just for a minute. Pride is self-centeredness. It's self-absorption driven by a need to prove to yourself and others that you matter. Think about that. Think, walk through this. Pride can can take the form of superiority or inferiority. So it can take the form of boasting or self-pity. Now, let me... uh, let me give you this is actually from kind of a list it's a checklist from Jonathan Edwards one of America's greatest theologians 1700s talks about pride let me give you this checklist uh, but let me let me before i go through this checklist identify the pride that's in all of us and, and let me talk to you a little bit why we have this pride why are we self absorbed why are we self centered you and I were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the face of our creator and to receive from him all of the acceptance, security, significance we would ever need. But we turned away from God. We rejected God. We thought we were smarter than God. Genesis chapter 3 makes that very clear. We doubt, doubt his goodness. We think, we think we know better than him and we went our own way and so that, that spiritual alienation immediately 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 creates psychological alienation within us. We become empty on the inside. And that emptiness becomes this desperation to find acceptance and approval and to prove ourselves the, and we make life about us. The essence of sin is self-centeredness. And it comes from this vacuum, this emptiness inside because we're not connected to God and receiving what we desperately need from him. And, of course, that spiritual alienation creates a psychological alienation which creates social alienation. You want to know why we've got so much hostility and anger and racism and, and division and disharmony on this planet Earth and here in good old God bless America? is because people are alienated from God. People don't know the living God of the Bible because if they did, it would change the way that they do life their life would be filled up. They would have a sense of contentment in him and they would respond differently to the difficulties of life and to the people in their life. It just changes them. That's just how it is. And so here's some of the things that it does to us, this emptiness, when we're not walking in vital union and communion with God. And even as Christians, we can be connected, but we're not living in vital union and communion with God. It can create these things in our lives. Uh, Jonathan Edwards on pride. Pride is a number one secret enemy. The more you have, the less you can see. The more you have, the less you can see. I don't have any pride. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You can't see it. The more pride you have, the less you can see. You know that you're really heading into the the direction of humility when you say, yeah, I've got pride. I, I struggle with some pride. I'm beginning to see that more clearly. Boom. Number two, fault finder, critical of others. Number three, harsh spirit. You're condescending, commanding, condemning. Number four, putting on pretense. You can't share false feelings and failures. You got this pretense up between you and God. You don't open up and pour your heart out to God. You don't do it to others. It's pride that keeps you from that. Number five, you're easily offended. You're thin-skinned. You're not teachable. You're defensive. Someone tries, to, I mean, for years, I hate to say it, but for decades, in my marriage relationship, my wife would try to confront me over issues, and I was very defensive. And it just, uh, it was pride. It took me a long time to see that. So crazy, can still fall prey to that. And I'm not teachable, thin-skinned. Number six, presumption before God and man. In other words, you have an attitude of entitlement. God owes me, I'm a good person. Of course, I get all these things from him. Look how great I am. Or you owe me, it's kind of that that entitlement attitude. Which, by the way, that's prevalent in, in American culture today. Entitlement, oh my goodness. All of this, all of this you see in American culture today. Uh, hungry for attention, superiority. Uh, superiority is the boasting. I deserve admiration because of how much I've accomplished. Look at me, everybody. Yes, I am very great. Thank you very much. Uh, it, it's also in. It's seen in inferiority through self-pity. I deserve admiration because of how much I've suffered. Poor me. Pat me on the back, because I'm, I, I've really suffered a lot. That's, that's also self-absorption, self-centeredness. And then number eight is uh, neglecting others. So I talked about being thin-skinned, but then you also become thick-skinned when, when it's towards others, insensitive to the needs and the feelings of others. Now, what's crazy about our culture today is that we try to fix a, an inferiority complex by giving a person a superiority complex. Let me explain what I mean by that, is that someone's really down in the dumps, and they're really down on themselves. and so, I'm just no good. I'm just a worthless person. I can't do anything right. And what do we do? We say, no, no, you know, you're really a good person. You're really a wonderful person. And yeah, you can do a lot of things right. And, and what do you, wait, 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 time out, time out, time out. You're not helping them deal with their problem. Their problem is self-absorption it's self-centeredness you got to help them to get their eyes off of themselves whether it's superiority or inferiority that's our problem those are just the two manifestations of that and um, and so you got to do the next thing humility is this next thing here it is humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less that's a c.s lewis quote by the way You can put C.S. Lewis there. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It is the freedom of self forgetfulness because you are captivated with the beauty and the glory of God. You're captivated with the beauty and the glory of God. So listen to this uh, quote from J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. So what does he mean by that? Here's what he means by that. So you're a quarterback, brand new quarterback in the NFL, getting ready for football, and uh, it looks pretty promising for you. And you've got fans that tell you, hey, you're really a good quarterback. That carries some weight, but not near as much weight as if Tom Brady were to say, you're an outstanding quarterback. Does that make sense? So let me say that quote again. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Here's how it applies to us. When you begin to understand the gospel, that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins, for you. He did that for you. To die in your place for your sins and all who repent and believe have everlasting life. When you begin to understand that the God of the galaxies loved you so much, that he came to this earth and died in your place for your sins. He loves you. He adores you. He gave his life for you. Let me say it again. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Oh, my goodness, nothing will fill you up like that. When you live smack dab in the middle of the gospel and you're feasting on that every day, it changes you. It changes how you respond to life. When you hear those words ring in your soul, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I will never leave you or forsake you. I've got you covered. You'll never find greater satisfaction than in me. All of those things you have in your life are gifts. They're gifts from me and pointers back to me. The source of all satisfaction Blessed self-forgetfulness. And when you meet a truly humble person, next point in your notes, you wouldn't think him or her humble, but very content. There's a contentedness. And incredibly interested in helping you find your deepest happiness, not from God, but in God. So you got healing, you got humility, and now we've got hospitality, verses 12 through 24. So a place, a people, both where we live, where we worship, healing, Humility, hospitality. Hospitality is welcoming strangers. That's your next fill in the blank. Hospitality is welcoming strangers into your life and treating them like friends so that God can turn some of them into family. So Desert Breeze is a place where strangers become friends, friends become family. Hospitality is welcoming strangers into, in, into your life, into your home, into that Third place, you guys know what a third place is. So you got you got your home. You got work. The second place, first place is home. Second place is work. Third place would be where's the, where do you like to hang out? You Got a coffee shop you like to hang out? You invite them into that. It could be any number of things like that. That's that's what it is. Now what what kind of strangers? I put this on your notes. What kind of strangers should be you you? be inviting into your into your life so that they can become friends who can eventually maybe become family because they can come to know Jesus as you do. So what kind of strangers? Other Christians. Other Christians. And you're probably thinking, they're not strangers. They are people who share my faith. Are you kidding? There are a lot of strange Christians right here in this place. <laughs> right here this morning. Just join a small group. You go, those people are strange. And they're probably saying the same thing about you, okay? Yeah, we all... The, the, the strangeness is due to the fact that we're isolated from others, but the more we get closer to one another, it helps to work out the issues of our life. We don't become so strange unless you have really a strange small group, and then that would be another issue, but that's, that's part of it. Also, not just other Christians, but neighbors, neighbors where you live, where you play, where you work, where you worship, we have Muslims that live right across the street, People, our neighbors in our neighborhood, Nancy and I, we make an effort to reach out to them, to love them, to, to chase them down, to look into their windows and go, hey, <laughs> come out of there, come out here and meet us, talk to us. No, we don't do that. That, that would be weird, okay? That's stalking. That's against the law. But, and then needy people. First Peter 4.9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The Greek word for hospitality is love, love of strangers, Romans twelve thirteen contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The word seek means work hard at it. I, I love the book uh, by John Ortberg, Everyone's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. And in one of the chapters, chapter 2, it says, The Wonder of Oneness. And in there, he he talks about this. There is a little volume called The All Better Book, in which elementary uh, school children try to solve some of the world's toughest problems. What do you do about the ozone layer? How to help people stop smoking? But here's the toughest. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? Here's what the elementary children said. Here's the first one. People should find lonely people and ask their name and address. Then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. And when you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. That's Kalani, uh, age eight. Obviously, this girl has the gift of administration. And, uh, (laughs) And then here's another one. Make food that talks to you when you eat. For instance, it would say, how are you doing? And what happened to you today? That's Max, age nine. Of course, that would come from a boy, okay? (laughs) And then here's another one. We could get people a pet or a husband (laughs) or a wife And and take them places. That's uh, Matt, age age eight. I mean, this makes you wonder about Matt's understanding of marriage, okay? (laughs) But the most touching response is the one that can break your heart. It comes very last. It says, sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me. So I do one of those. Brian, age eight. With billions of people in the world, someone should figure out a system where no one is lonely. Someone has. And it's God. It's called His family. And you know what? I I gotta be honest with you. There's hardly a weekend that goes by after I'm finished up with all three services. I'm totally exhausted. But I'm exhausted because I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by the neediness. Of the people that come in here, the loneliness, the struggle, the losses. And little do you know, when you come in here, there's people that are desperate. Desperate for a touch. Desperate for encouragement. Desperate for hope. To know that they're okay. That they're going to get through this. And they need to know that someone loves them. And I my heart is that they would connect with God. And I know I can't do it. But we together, we together as a body of Christ, as a family, we can help people to connect with Jesus, to know him and to experience him. So when you come in here, don't sit all isolated. Like Get to know the folks around you. Reach out to them. In fact, let me, let me give you some application here and what to be thinking about. So if you, wanna, if you wanna begin to apply this hospitality thing, so here, it's on your notes. Join a small group, host a small group, lead a small group, start a small group. Woo, you get the point? Yeah, you gotta connect, connect. In fact, you don't even have to start a small group that's part of this church. Start your own small group. Start your own dang small group, okay? I mean, and feel free to do that. Just call up a couple friends and say, hey, I, let's go out. This, I did this for uh, years over here at AMC 30 with about three or four guys. Saturday morning, hang out with them, study God's word, pray together. Do that. You've got to do that. You need to do that. You're not gonna be healthy if you don't. Here's another thing you can start thinking about doing. Uh, join our hospitality team. I mean, you help to create an atmosphere of, of hospitality here. Serve somewhere in one of our weekend services, our children's ministry. Our youth, and when you, when you receive those kids, man, you celebrate and you make those people feel comfortable and happy that you're glad to see them and do that, and I think our, our teams do a great job. You can be a part of that. Participate in any number of our community outreach efforts. And here's the last one on there. Meet and greet and mean it. When we meet and greet, we don't just do that, just kind of go through the motions. Just Because there's somebody sitting around you that desperately needs to see that smile, to have that hug, to know that you are for them and love them and care for them, but more importantly, that they have a Savior that is for them and not against them. I I love... uh, the different people that are part of our hospitality team, a couple that is part of that is William and Olga Jordan. And you always know that when William's in the service, because he's one of those Pentecostal kind of dudes that talks back to you. So he's not in this service, but he was in the service last night and uh, he, he'll talk back, and I'm, I'm cool with that, if you guys want to talk back to me a little bit, but don't get too busy and too noisy, because then it gets re- really distracted, I get distracted easy anyway, but, but what's so funny about this guy is that there was an, a couple weeks ago, there was a new couple that came into the church, and she was sitting there praying, and she goes, oh Lord, please let this church not be like the last three churches we went to, that nobody ever even greeted us, And just as she got that out of her mouth and she was praying that, here comes William walking up. Hey, how you doing? My name's William. Are you new here? Good to have you with us here at Desert Breeze. She just went through the ceiling and she was like, whoa. That's what we all need to be doing. If this is your church home, we all need to be doing that. Looking for newcomers, looking for people that we can reach out and minister to. That's hospitality, Hebrews 13, two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Okay, we're almost done, here we go. So you got those first three. The only way you can pull off the first three is you have gotta have this fourth fourth one. And that's a place of honor. You have gotta honor Christ above all others. The kingdom of God is the true home we all long for. Whether you know that or not, whether you believe that or not, that's the true home you long for. Second point, only the poor in spirit receive the kingdom of God. When you recognize that there is nothing you can do to bridge the chasm of sin that separates you from a holy, righteous God, but that has been done for you through Jesus Christ, that's when you know you're poor in spirit and you receive that free gift, that gift that comes through the indispensable and costly love of Christ. Here's the next point. Jesus Christ became homeless so that we might have a home with God forever and it is why we honor him above all others. Matthew twenty-eight twenty: foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I mean, think about that. The creator of the universe came to this earth. In fact, I love the definition of grace given to us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Here's the last point. If you believe that, not just as a concept, but as a reality in your heart, this will produce a deep affection for God and an emotional wealth from God, making you into a healing, humble, and hospitable person. So Jesus offers in once and once from us love that is more real, more passionate, more interactive, more delightful than all the human kinds of love put together, making all the human kinds of love even better. Let me end with a story, and then we'll pray. This is from... uh, This is, let me see, where is it from? It's from Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He gives us a picture of what our homes and church should be like One of the pictures, as we saw in this text, uh, that Jesus often used was wedding banquet. So this is what Yancey writes, accompanied by her fiance, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston to order what was supposed to be their wedding banquet. They poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, pointed to the pictures of flower arrangements they liked. They both had expensive taste, and the bill came to 13,000. After uh, leaving a check for half that amount as a down payment, the couple went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little bit longer. And he dumped his fiance. When his angry fiance returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 back, you have two options, forfeit the rest of the down payment, which was thousands of dollars, or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry, really I am. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. Ten years before, the same woman had been living in a homeless shelter She had gotten back on her feet, found a good job, set aside a sizable nest egg. Now she had this wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And it was in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom, she said. (laughs) She sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. And that warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-mud pizza off the cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu, Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers, Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead ate chocolate wedding cake and danced to big band melodies late into the night. Isn't that a cool story? So here's what God wants to do. He wants to recycle our pain and then use that and use us to be channels of his grace to a lot of lost and lonely people in the world around us. Let's pray. So Father, thank you. Thank you for your indispensable and costly love of your son Jesus on the cross for us. We are not not fatherless, futureless orphans but have become your dearly beloved children, members of the family of God, giving us infinite and eternal acceptance, security, and significance. We pray that in this broken and fallen world of sin and suffering, that both where we live and where we worship, here at Desert Breeze, would be a place of healing, humility, hospitality, and honor for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful and holy name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Love you guys.